This is The Predictive Marketer, the weekly podcast featuring interviews with the most influential predictive marketing professionals on the planet to tell us what's working today and what's coming tomorrow. The Predictive Marketer is brought to you by SQ Media. In episode six of The Predictive Marketer, we're joined by Tom Gatton, Tom is the founder and CEO of Growth Intel, a London-based firm using machine learning and data science to do predictive marketing. Tom is a thought leader in the predictive marketing space and in demand as an advocate of using new technology to power business and economic growth. In this episode, we will learn about Growth Intel's very unique application of full-stack data science how American Express doubled its average deal size in the UK this year, the huge positive effect predictive marketing could have on global trade and on civilization. Listen in now as Tom starts us off with a story taking us from Oxford to the BBC to business intelligence to submarine detection technology to founding Growth Intel. I started out as a journalist after university So I went straight into the BBC World Service, which is radio, international radio. Um, We uh, would make programs that people all over the world had to be interested in. So it's a very interesting, very interesting uh, job. And it was also, it also involved, um, coincidentally, quite a lot of cold calling. So I would, I would call up uh, scientists and politicians and people all over the world and say, you know, I'm calling from the BBC, I'd like to interview you. And you've got an amazing brand at the BBC, so you get you get to speak to a lot of very interesting people. Um, so, so I did that uh, briefly, and then I went to work for the Times of India um, as a newspaper uh, in India. And I came back to this country to work for a business intelligence company called IHS, which is a big American multinational um, uh, BI firm. And it's quite a traditional company specializes in oil and gas and heavy industry publications. The part that I was working for was called Screen Digest and they were providing information on trends in the sale of digital content. So it was actually a, a quite a uh, quite a forward-looking part of the part of the business, but it was still a very traditional company. And one day Google came to them and said, "How much money is Groupon making today?" And the company I was working for said, "Well, we don't know. They're a private company. They're a private company in the States, they're a private company in Europe, we just don't know. If you came back in three years' time, we'll be, they will have filed something with the business registries in Europe and you'll be able to say something about them. But that wasn't good enough. This is late 2010 and um, Google wanted to know how much money they were making because they were looking to make an offer to acquire them. And so there was a guy called Hal Varian, who's Google's chief economist. Um, he's now an investor in growth intelligence. But at the time, he, he'd invented Google Trends. Well, Google Trends is this uh, system you can go on, you can put in a word, and it will show you how many people are searching for it. So he did a project where he, he'd done various things looking at um, the spread of flu across the U.S. Spread of, uh, you know, he could see in real time how seasonal flu was, was spreading geographically because he was looking for people searching for, I've got flu or I've got a headache. Or, and he did various other things predicting macroeconomic trends like unemployment by how many people were searching for, how do I file for unemployment during the financial crisis. And he did a little mini project just to see if he could try and estimate how much money Groupon was making by taking a constellation of other companies that had similar business models and plotting how many people were searching for them 
on Google at the time they announced their results and then drew a line straight through the middle and said, well, Groupon are getting this many searches, so they're probably making this much money. And I thought that's very interesting. That's the, the company I was working for was very, very traditional. We were doing a lot of uh, manual research online um, using very traditional sources. Um, you know, the company's house in Europe, the Dunner Bradstreet in the US. And I thought that's totally different. That's a, a new way of looking at things. They were able to use real-time data from the web to say something interesting about the growth of a business. So I left, I left the company and started a magazine called Startup Intelligence. And the idea was we would provide um, reports, you know, the top 25 most exciting machine-to-machine -machine communication startups in Turkey or Mexico or Southeast Asia. Um, and we had kind of one major client for the first couple of years was IBM. We worked for Google a bit. We worked for Tech City, so UK uh, government and regional government, but the main client was IBM. And they'd say, here's 50 companies we've partnered with or sold to um, in the US. Find us another 25 in Turkey that look like this. And I would sit down, it was just me in those days, I would sit down, look through all these companies, read their web, you know, look, look through all their websites, look through all the news articles, um, read everything that was about them online. I'd look at Alexa, I'd look at Twitter, I'd look at... Um, you know, their LinkedIn profiles, and I, of the people that worked there, I'd interview the CEOs, and then I'd kind of draw conclusions about what it was that linked these companies. And for IBM at the time, they were really, really interested in smart cities and the Internet of Things. So they were, you know, what the, the common denominator turned out to be companies that were three to five software engineers making half a million in revenue, but not much more, in, you know, using sensor networks, big data, Internet of Things, in the context of transport or energy or logistics, because that's what IBM's really, really interested in, particularly if they had an organic, inorganic interaction. So I found that they, they really liked when companies had this kind of charismatic element. So, for example, I remember we found a, we found a, a small company in, in Russia. It was a spin out of a local university I hadn't even incorporated yet. And this guy was going to make a company um, building an audio breathalyzer. So... Basically, this this machine plugs onto the front of the the door of the coal mine, mm -hmm. and the Russian miner goes up and counts to ten in Russian, and it will lock the door if he's too drunk to go down the coal mine. <laughs> so we had we had great fun, you know, seeing if we could set it off, downloading the piece of software and trying to see if we could sound like a drunk Russian coal miner. Um, so that was that was great fun. There was a company in Southeast Asia that was using the physiology of fish to work out quality of water because they had various different species of fish that were susceptible to different contaminants in the water and then they have a camera over the top of each tank to see how many fish had died whilst the, whilst the water was flowing through um, as a company was making a, a system that basically had a handheld uh, handheld detector for explosives um, with a bee like a live bee in the center of this handheld device and it would train the bee to, to recognize the smell of explosives and then had a little camera to watch which way its proboscis went and whether it was extended or not. Anyway, very cool companies. Um, but we would do this all manually. And yeah, so at that time, I started realizing that IBM were using it for marketing. So whilst I thought they were going to use it to invest in these companies, and sometimes they did, a lot of the time they would go and, um, they would go and I would give them this report I would very carefully write up this report um, with lots and lots of interviews, um, photos of the founders, all sorts of things, this report on 25 companies. Mm -hmm. And IBM would totally ignore 
the report and flip right to the back page where I had the list of the companies I'd spoken to and the, the phone numbers of the CEOs. And they'd call them up and sell them DB2 instances. So I realized that what I was actually doing was very expensive lead generation for IBM. Hmm. And then about that time, I met a guy called Prash who was tracking submarines at BA Systems. So BA Systems is a big uh, British defense contractor. So they work mostly for the British government and other you know, defense departments around the world. So Prash is now our CTO. Um, and he, so British boats would drag arrays of microphones behind them in the water. So this system's called passive sonar. Basically, they're listening for enemy submarines. So these arrays of, you know, two miles of tiny little microphones are listening to the sound of the water. And Prash's job was to write software. We led a team of software engineers there that were writing software that filtered out the noise of the waves and the fish and the boat's engine and all the other engines of the boats around to listen in for the hum of the electrics in a submarine halfway around the world. Mm. And then be able to tell, well, this is an American submarine or this is a French submarine or a Chinese submarine. And it's a class, you know, one three two submarine and it's going this direction and it's got this much battery power and in two days time we predict it's going to be in roughly this area and i said to i said to him well what i'm doing is a bit like that which is a bit of a forced analogy but basically i said we're listening into the sounds that companies make in the world in the data sphere and we're trying to imply you know we're trying to predict their behavior we're trying to predict something about whether they're going to be you know whether they're going to buy a db2 instance and what you're doing is listening into the sounds that these submarines are making and using the faint signals that you can pull out of the noise to predict something about them. So maybe we can use machines to do what I'm doing with my brain. And that's basically what we do. <laughs> so companies come along and give us a set of companies that they've attempted to market to in the past. And they say, you know, here, you know here's all the companies we, we tried last year. It's 250,000 SMEs, name of company, date, outcome of the call or the email or um, whatever it is and our system then looks back in time to see what were the patterns of signals that those companies were exhibiting at the time they said yes or no and then they're able to use growth intelligence to find other companies that are exhibiting the good patterns today and basically it just makes them more efficient in their marketing because they can use a statistical approach to predict which ones are more or less likely to respond so when you started growth intel four years ago Predictive marketing was essentially an open canvas. There were no other companies per se. There were no use cases. Tell us what it was like to be a pioneer in the predictive marketing industry when you started Growth Intel. When I first started out the company, no one had any idea what a predictive marketing piece of software was supposed to do, was supposed to look like. I think now it's it's much it's you know it's, I think it's clear that. All of the companies in our space, it's starting to become more mature. People are starting to know roughly what to expect from from the space. But but yeah, when, when I started, we were setting out to solve related but different problems. So, you know, in those early days when I was writing reports manually for IBM, the problem was, you know, I'm I want to find a relatively small number of very well qualified companies which I can invite to an event and you know give an award to and eventually they'll buy they'll buy IBM kit and then when they're a massive company you know we need to predict the winners of the future so that when you know big data takes over when the internet of things takes over the world it'll be running on IBM IBM infrastructure 
So that's a different problem. It's a subtly different problem from the one we solve today, although it is very much related. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, for a long time in 2013, we, we thought that we would be primarily used by financial services companies. And we actually won a, competi a fintech competition um, called the Fintech Innovation Lab, sponsored by Accenture. And we got our office space was paid for by Goldman Sachs and JP Morgan for about six months. And then at the end of that six months, I think we realized that you know, we can't, we couldn't really, in all honesty, call ourselves a financial financial services or fintech company, because most of our clients came from, you know, well, some of them, a lot of them came from financial services areas in those days. Um, but that was, but you know, we also had clients in logistics and technology and um, a variety of different industries. Interesting. You touched on it briefly, but what is the target market that Growth Intel is pursuing? So we're going after companies that are targeting small businesses at scale. So any any company that's doing high volume marketing. So a, a typical example of this would be, um, well, let's think of someone like Box or Dropbox. They're targeting a very large number of very small businesses at scale. So. You know, a lot of their, some of their money will come from enterprise deals, but a lot of their money comes from relatively small businesses. And you know, companies like this will have a variety of different channels. They'll use online, they'll use online advertising, um, they'll use tele telemarketing, they'll use channel partners. Um, you know, sometimes they use direct mail. Um, and in general, these outbound channels have got relatively poor results. So the kind of industry accepted industry average for years and years from telemarketing was about 1% and from direct mail was about half a percent. And then there are, there are uh, inbound channels which are, you know, have much higher conversion rates once you've captured the lead, but they're very expensive to develop and they're not scalable. So where you are a, where you're a fast growing business relying solely on an inbound model and you know you're getting challenges from your boss to to grow at 30% 40% 50% a year you can with an inbound model you can only target companies within your i call a content sphere so only you can only target companies that are likely to receive the content that you're distributing but very very uh, commonly you'll want to go outside that and address a larger proportion of your total addressable market and that's where you rely on the outbound channels, the telemarketing, the direct mail, which have the opposite problem. They're very scalable, but very low success rate because the traditional model would be to go to Dun & Bradstreet, Experian, a traditional credit um, uh, uh, credit um, analysis provider or list provider. You buy lists and you call through the lists, uh, which is highly inefficient. Companies that are in that space, that's, that's, that's the challenge that we are addressing. Tom Gatton of Growth Intel returns in just a moment. Stay with us. I'm Steve Chenoweth, and this is Episode 6 of The Predictive Marketer. This podcast is made possible by SQ Media, an innovative marketing agency and creators of the Predictive Marketing Framework, making marketing ROI more predictable for our clients. Also by the SQ Media Kiva team, with our partners at kiva.org, we fulfill our mission to provide entrepreneurial support worldwide. 
We provide $25 loans, which have a 95% payback rate, to entrepreneurs in third world countries, helping to replace hopelessness with hope and enabling human ingenuity to bring lasting positive change worldwide. We invest in jobs and trade, not aid. Visit us at sqmediateam.com. Let's talk a little bit about the data sets that you work with. I think growth intelligence is quite unique in that we do full stack data science. So we go and rather than aggregating APIs from other uh, other providers of raw information, we actually we 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 build. I mean, probably this is because uh, partly because of our geography in the, in Europe, there aren't providers of. Uh, the sort of information at scale, like for example, there's a company called HG Data in the States, which provides lots and lots of information about the installed technologies at companies all over the all over the US. But their coverage in in Europe is not so good, and there's many many examples of this. So we've been forced by circumstance um, to go and source data ourselves from raw uh, raw unstructured data, um, but it's also provided us with um, you know quite a, a a a deep grounding in that kind of data science so by full stack data science I mean that our 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 developers here are using primary sources so rather than aggregating data sets that already exist in a structured form we go out and we we crawl websites millions of websites at millions of businesses all across the world and we go and get information from job ads, you know, raw text, which is then interpreted using machine learning to create what we call signals, which are kind of higher order pieces of information. And it's those higher order pieces of information that our machine learning system, which then predicts which businesses are likely or less like more or less likely to convert works on. So that's that's quite that's quite unique. Yes. That full stack. That's incredibly powerful to be building your own database and not be dependent on third-party data. Yeah, let me ask this. How would you characterize the predictive marketing function that Growth Intel provides? Meaning, how does it relate to all of the other functions in sales and marketing? It's like a brain that sits in the center of your marketing and sales operations. I think of it, if you imagine you're a typical large, high-volume B2B business, you will ha- you'll be spending you know five, ten, fifteen million pounds on your sales and marketing function a year. You're going to have a CRM. You're going to have a marketing automation system. You're going to have an inside sales team. You're going to have a field sales team. You might have an, an outsourced telemarketing team, and you might have a digital marketing team. And all of those elements are are working from you know traditionally rather poor quality market data. Mm-hmm. So as as a marketer in previous years, you would have had to, you know, you can link your CRM to your marketing automation system. You can link, you know, the work of your telemarketers to your salespeople, but you're guiding the whole, you know, machinery from an understanding of the economy, which is fundamentally flawed. So, for example, if you used a Dun & Bradstreet based understanding of the economy, you're going to be relying on North America. North American industry classification codes, NAICS codes, or standard industry classification codes, SIC codes, and historical financial filings to get a segmentation of the economy. So to know, you know, even the basics of, you know, how many companies can I can I target, and how am I going to 
you know, wh- which order am I going to go after them in? You're relying on that sort of information. Now, the problem with that sort of information, NAICS codes are much better than SIC codes. And one of them, I mentioned Hal Varian before, but um, Hal was actually involved in the development of NAICS codes. They're much better than their predecessor, but the system itself was invented in 1948. It's been updated six times since then. It's, it's, a, it's a fundament, you know, companies can only have one classification system. Companies self-classify themselves. It's a one-dimensional system and it doesn't describe whole areas of the economy. In Europe, a third of businesses simply don't have an SIC code or it's, I mean, so our industry classification code in the traditional databases is other business services not elsewhere classified. Right which is totally not useful for you know if you're if you're a business who wants to go and target you know technology companies you'll be missing out on a third of them from the get-go you know what, what do you do if you want to target companies that are developing software for the oil and gas industry do you do you go after the NAICS code for oil and gas or do you go after the NAICS code for software you can't go after both so you know and if you're relying on for the size of the business, their historical financial filings, you'll be working on data that is, you know, has just is just very poorly populated. So I think of growth intelligence like a brain that sits. If you imagine, you know, the CRM is your arm, the arm of the robot, and the marketing automation system is the other arm of the robot, and your sales mm-hmm. team's the body of the robot. Your inside sales team is one leg, and the telemarketing team's the other leg. Growth intelligence, and you know, all of this is kind of lumbering around on you know, rather poor intelligence. Growth intelligence is like a brain that sits in the center of this and coordinates everything. So it looks out to the wide, you know, world of all the businesses. Every si- We have a, a system which has a record of every single potential buyer in the entire economy. We, we believe we're the, we're the first non-governmental organization ever to attempt a, an, an understanding of the structure of an entire economy. So our system has has you know a, a basis of understanding every single potential buyer, and then providing predictive power throughout your marketing and sales pipeline to keep all of those elements aligned. You're going to get better value out of your CRM because you're getting higher quality opportunities going into the top. Better value out of your marketing automation system because you're combining interaction data to score your leads with external data of what's happening in the outside world. Your sales team, you know, we found that our clients, so one of our clients, American Express, has doubled their average deal size this year as a result of using growth intelligence, which is not something we predicted at the beginning of the year. It's, it's you know, as well as we started out um, by saying, you know, for American Express, look, we're going we're gonna to significantly increase your conversion rates. And we have. We've tripled their conversion rates from record to appointment. But a corollary of this is that we've, we've doubled their average deal size just because they have a, a higher volume of better quality opportunities in the top of their funnel. So it has a full company effect. Not, it's not just you know, a plug-in replacement for you know, uh, lists of old. Yeah, that's fascinating. So you're working with companies worldwide, is that correct? Yes, although we're only helping them sell into Europe. So ah. we, work, we work with American companies, we work with companies all over the world, but it's to help them sell into Europe right now. Very good. So how do you see predictive analytics and predictive marketing unfolding uh, as we go forward what is what does it mean for marketers well this is such an exciting space because it's such an exciting space to work in because you know we are all we are all kind of 
standing in the shallow end of the of the pool very much you know we are only mm-hmm. scratching the surface of, of what's possible here right. um i mean the way the way i see this going from a business perspective is that all all businesses will have an understanding of every potential buyer that they could have anywhere in the world and a numerical representation with a known error of how likely each one of them is to respond positively to their marketing so i sort of see this as a kind of a a predictive supply network for the entire economy if you imagine every business could know all of their potential buyers and how likely they were to convert imagine what a difference that would make to global trade you know, trade is trade is a, a vitally important part of human civilization. Without it, we wouldn't have, you know, we wouldn't be able to build spaceships. We wouldn't be able to build buildings. You know, you know, no one would have a job. You know, trade is a fundamental human characteristic. And by by realizing the potential of trade in the world, we can actually, you know, to a large degree, realize the potential of civilization. So that's quite kind of a big vision. But you know, predictive marketing could. Uh, could get a long way towards you know boosting growth for for companies all around the world and even the growth of economies. I couldn't agree more and it really is amazing to think of the domino effect predictive marketing could have going forward which brings me to your expectations for growth intel in 2016. We've grown very fast this year. Um, we're very lucky to have a you know fantastic you know world leading group of investors and advisors and um, we've grown our team Ah, well, we've probably quadrupled in size this year, I think. Um, so next year, we are going to be working uh, with a wider variety of different types of businesses. So, so far, we've we've stuck to, I mean, the UK is a leader in financial services, so it was sort of inevitable that we would we would start with financial services, and we've worked with banks and non-bank financial services providers of, of many different kinds, particularly SME lending. And this year we've spent a lot of time working with logistics companies and website technology companies. So our growth over the next year is going to be into many different many different uh, types of business. So we're, we're targeting insurance uh, companies, insurance brokers, um, a wide variety of technology technology companies, recruitment companies, um, office furniture, all sorts of different types of businesses we're going to be able to work with next year. We're still going to stick to working with the very largest businesses in in the economy. So we we aim to work with the top three leaders in each space and we don't tend to spend too much time uh, trying to work with companies that are sort of four, five and six down the market leader down from the market leader um, so we're going to continue to expand our coverage um, you know which is really true 100% coverage of every single business in the economy um, into other parts of Europe we haven't covered yet covered yet and into the states so we'll be looking to work with companies selling into the United States uh, next year in 2016 as well. Sounds like an amazing year ahead for sure. Tom, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. Awesome, Steve. Well, it's been really great to speak to you. Thanks so much for instigating this. Thank you for listening to the Predictive Marketer podcast. You can find complete show notes at thepredictivemarketer.com. 
Until next time, we're wishing you much success with your marketing.